0: Father, we thank You for Your Word, and now as we turn to the the study of the Word and the preaching of the Word of God, we pray that You would give us ears to hear Your Word. But not just ears to hear it, Lord, we want hearts to receive it humbly. We want to be humble listeners and obedient receivers of the Word. Lord, as we look into Your Word tonight that will... Show us the great kingship of our God and the great judgment that awaits all unbelievers and the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ and taking refuge in him by faith. Oh, we pray that you would remind us of such a sufficient and a perfect gospel message that you have given. We thank you for your word. Teach us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and as we begin and continue our journey in this wonderful book of Psalms, last week we looked at Psalm 1 on the wisdom of God that comes from the Word of God, and yet tonight we come to Psalm 2. You have the outline there in front of you, and you see the title of the sermon, God Reigns While the Nations Rebel. Hmm, I wonder if that's relevant to our time. Psalm 2, follow with me as I read all 12 verses of God's perfect and holy word. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship. The Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! I think the doctrine of Christology, that is, the study of the person of Christ. Is the most fascinating and riveting and heartwarming subject of study that the mind could ever engage in. To behold the Lord Jesus Christ is to gaze upon the invisible God. Jesus is the regal king, the divine king. He is the kingly and the beautiful and the preeminent Son of God. Jesus is one with the Father, now interceding for believers in heaven, and one day, He is to return again to reign. We believe that the Bible teaches the incarnate Christ, and we believe that the Bible teaches the preeminent Christ, and we believe in the divine Christ. Let me clarify. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity who had no beginning, but he is the beginner of all things. We believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Savior, the virgin born who was sent by God to earth in order to redeem all that the Father elected. We believe that Jesus is Redeemer. He lived righteously, he atoned sufficiently, and he substituted himself graciously to save sinners that are totally unable to save themselves. We believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is alive and risen from the dead. He was buried, and yet he has been raised up, showing himself alive to hundreds of witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven, he is seated at God's right hand, he is exalted and interceding In prayer for his people. Jesus Christ is savior. And he is king. He is lord and he is ruler. And he is the friend of sinners. And at the same time he is the judge. Of all unbelievers. The great theme of scripture. We might boil it all down. Is this. The redeemer of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who came to die for his people. The Old Testament prophesies and anticipates the coming of the Savior. And the, re- and the Gospels reveal and present Jesus as Savior. The book of Acts proclaims Jesus as the risen one from the dead. Jesus is the preeminent Lord explained in all of the New Testament letters. And Jesus is the powerful monarch and king who will return and reign in the book of revelation. So I mentioned all of that by way of introduction because I want you to hear this. Psalm 2 is a unique and a divine and a glorious psalm that highlights two genres of literature. The first genre, this is a kingship psalm. Every commentator acknowledges that. This is what we call a a kingship or a royal psalm. It, It extols God as the only king of heaven and earth, but not only God, Jesus, the coming Messiah. But not only is it first a royal or a kingship psalm. Second of all, it is a messianic psalm. That's the second kind of genre or literature. It's a messianic psalm because it brings us to the very truth that God is going to provide a savior for sinners in the Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, how I wish that we could take hours and hours and hours I would love to teach on how this psalm brings us into the intertrinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. Oh, how I would love to teach on the promises of prayer, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give all of the nations as your inheritance. Oh, how I would love to teach on that. Oh, how I would love to teach on the future kingdom and kingship of Christ, where he will reign on Mount Zion over all of the nations. How I would love to teach a whole sermon on the power and the justice and the righteousness of Christ and how he will destroy all of his enemies fairly and righteously and according to his perfect timing is an amazing psalm that brings us to the very heart of the power and kingship and royalty of Jesus the Messiah. But as I mentioned last week, just by way of introduction, before we turn to the text, let me give you a little background, because Psalms 1 and 2 sort of function as the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1, remember last week, it begins with a blessing. Do you see it there? Psalm 1, 1, how blessed is the man. Look at the end of Psalm 2. How blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. Psalm 1 contrasts the righteous man with the sinner. Well, Psalm 2 contrasts the rebellious nations with the righteous son of God. Psalm 1 teaches that the wicked are blown away like worthless chaff. Psalm 2 teaches that the wicked will be shattered and dashed into pieces like pottery. Psalm 2 amazingly begins with worldwide rebellion. Worldwide rebellion, and yet Psalm 2 ends with God's invitation to the rebels to find refuge in him, lest they be destroyed. Or, maybe you can think of it like this, Psalm 2 begins with the question, Why? Why is there so much turmoil in the world? And yet Psalm 2 ends with a statement of confidence. How blessed are all who take refuge in our God. So don't let your heart in this world dwell on the why questions and stay there let your heart work its way to the rest of the psalm where you can find your confidence and your comfort and your stronghold in the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 1 teaches that godliness is adhering to the word of God. Psalm 2 teaches that godliness is found in the adoration of the Son of God. The big point of Psalm 2 is, is that while all of the nations are rebelling, our God sovereignly reigns and he calls everyone to find refuge in the sun? Now, I've not been invited to the White House. If I was, you know what I would preach? This psalm. If I was brought before the president, I would preach this psalm in his hearing. If I was brought before any monarch or any world leader, I would preach this psalm in their hearing. Why? Because the whole point of the psalm is that while all of the nations and leaders and kings are rebelling against God, God sovereignly reigns over all and he calls everyone to find refuge in him before they are judged by his wrath. Imagine with me, imagine with me a, a fearful couple. A, a fearful couple, they're, they're huddled together in bed as they watch the 10 p.m. news at night, and they've seen all the headlines, and all the top stories, and all the violence, and all of the world events that have gone on that day. And then the news anchor says, and that's the news for today. Good night and sweet dreams. You think, where in the world do you go for hope when you are reminded of that? Where, 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 where do you go for comfort and refuge and security? Psalm 2 is where you can go. I don't know what the Lord has in store for our nation, economically, politically, or what He has in store for us globally. I, I don't understand all that... God is doing in terms of the political stage and the world stage and with wars and rumors of wars I don't even pretend to have all the answers to that but we know that our God reigns and he rules over all Psalm 2 is going to call me and it's going to call you and everyone in the world to behold the son of God and worship him That is the only hope for the soul. So, let's look at this psalm together. And there are four stanzas of three verses each. The psalm breaks down in a very even way. Four three-verse stanzas. And you see the outline there as we walk through this. Number one, I want you to see the rebellion of the nations. Now, in the Hebrew, if you and I could sort of Open and unroll our Hebrew scroll. If we all had that sort of a mindset here for a moment. And we're looking at the Hebrew language. These are loud verses. Full of agitation. And rioting. And rebellion. And shaking. And quaking. And trembling. And devising. And contriving. And rebelling. These verses are loud. Like our culture. Verse 1. Why? are the nations in an uproar. And why do the peoples devise or meditate? Notice the word play with Psalm 1. We are to meditate on the word. The nations are meditating on a vain thing. You see, Psalm 1, pardon me, verse 1 here of Psalm 2, it explains why our world is in such an unsettled state. Why is there so much anger and Violence and rioting and hatred and animosity in our world. Why is there such an unsettled turmoil globally in our world? Well, the answer is right here in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah or against his anointed one. And what do they say? Verse three, they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Don't think that the rebellion of the world and all the agitation and shaking and quaking and trembling and contriving of the world is something that they are ignorant of. This is a corporate, collective, planned, unified rebellion against God. There have always been the Hitlers, and the Caesars, and the Neros, and the Pharaohs, and the Papists, who deliberately set themselves against God in a very defiant way, kind of like Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, 16, when Goliath raved himself up and defied the true God of Israel. The language of verse 3 is the language of exile. Do you know what our world wants? They want freedom from the power of God. They don't want to be under the the, the power of Christ. They don't want to be under the control of God. They don't want to be subservient to God Almighty. Our world is loudly agitating because they hate the rule of God. They hate God and his Christ. The kings of the earth and all nations are seeking to break away from their required allegiance to God. And they say, let's, let's take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. You know what, I'm, I'm comforted by that. Let me tell you how practical this is. Yesterday I was at the abortion mill at Hope during my lunch hour and I was preaching the gospel. And a couple of ladies were going to go into the building, but for whatever reason they couldn't go in. And so they made a beeline for me. I was preaching the gospel, offering help, offering an ultrasound, adoption, financial help, all the different. The gospel, and yet also temporary help as well, physically. They came right over and said, why are you so angry? And I said, who's angry? I'm preaching the God of grace. And I'm giving you the gospel of eternal life. Who's angry? And they said, you're hateful. You're hating us. I said, who's hating? I'm giving you the hope of eternal life. They didn't know my name. They didn't know anything about me. It had nothing to do with me. It's because they didn't want God. And they didn't and they don't love the Messiah. Martin Luther said how important and comforting these verses are for the believer. Why? Because as the militant church, what does that mean? We're fighting, we're standing, we're still persevering in this world. The rage of your enemies is not aimed at you. The rage of your enemies is aimed at the Lord and at his Christ, and they can only reach you through him. I found comfort in that yesterday. They didn't know me. They weren't mad at me. They were mad at the gospel and the Christ that I was proclaiming to them. With all the tyrants and authority and the kings who are hungry for prestige and the scriptures of God that are absolutely despised in our world, with the Christ who has blasphemed the God who is abhorred, hell that is scorned and sin that is celebrated. Does God notice? We see the rebellion of the nations, verses 1 to 3. Does God notice all of that? Look in your outline at number two. Look at the rebuke of the Lord, verses 4 through 6. The shaking of the nations. Church family never shakes God one bit. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Don't miss the intentional opposite wordplay here. Notice in verses 1 to 3, how loud and they're shaking, and the nations are quaking, and the nations are in an uproar, and they're counseling, and they're yelling, and they're screaming, and they want to break God's fetters apart. And verse 4, God is quietly sitting and reigning and ruling. Do you see that there? Do you see how, how God is unmoved by the movements of kings in the world? With all of the unrest and all the commotion and all the disturbances and all the confusion, guess what? Your God and my God reigns as the steady king. So, your God, your God is steady, sturdy. He's an unhurried God. He's an unfrustrated God. He's an unworried God. And he's never biting his fingernails. Never worried, never concerned, never is he agitated. God is quietly reigning on high. Verse 4, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. It is a laughter of derision. It is a laughter of God ha! when the puny efforts of puny men and they dash their feebleness against God's overpowering strength. It's like God laughs at such human fury that the human beings think that they can shake Almighty God. Now, this, this is important. Because we live in a day where there are a lot of wicked rulers. We live in times where there are evil abortionists. We live in times when there are false teachers that abound. When there are atheistic educators all over the place. There are climate change warriors. There are arrogant sinners. And on and on we could go with all the descriptions that we would want to list. God laughs, He laughs. He scoffs. In fact, Psalm 37 gives a bit more detail as to why God laughs. Psalm 37:13, "The Lord laughs at the wicked because God sees that his day is coming." Psalm 37:13. Why does God laugh? Because the puny efforts of men revolting against God, rebelling against God, their day of judgment is coming. God laughs. He laughs. And in verse 5, then God will speak to them in his anger. If I could explain the Hebrew word for anger for a moment, it's actually the word for nostril. When the Bible says in verse 5 that God will speak to all rebels in his anger, it's such an anger of God as it were that nostrils are flaring. It's like when you're so angry and the veins are popping out and your nostrils are getting enlarged because you're you're so hot with rage. That's the image of this verse. With all of the kings and the judges and the nations and the rulers and all rebels who are rioting against God and they want freedom from God, He laughs in anger and he terrifies them in his fury saying, verse 6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. What does our God do? Our God rebukes the wicked just like he rebuked the Red Sea and it split. Just like God made an end of Moab and it was destroyed. Just like God said in Psalm 145, the wicked, he will destroy. This is what our God will do. I have installed my king. In the Hebrew, this is called a prophetic perfect. Talking about something in the past tense, even though it is referring to a future event of certainty. God says, the nations can rebel, and they can riot, and they can demand their freedom all they want, but I am going to establish my king as the monarch on Zion, my holy hill. Oh, for that day. This is the rebuke of the Lord to the rebellion of the nations. Our God. Tells the truth. Our God says it the way it is. Our God does not does not mince his words. He calls a spade a spade. If he calls the rebellion a rebellion. He says that you are counseling together against the Lord and His Messiah. And yet God laughs at your puny rebellion. And God will terrify them in His fury. But God will establish His King upon Zion. Which leads then to the third truth that you and I have to see. Oh, what glorious truth in your outline. Number three, we've seen the rebellion of the nations, the rebuke of the Lord. Third, the rulership of the Christ. Now, it'll be neat to talk to the New Testament writers when we get to heaven and get to know a little bit more of what was in their minds when they were writing, but I have to think Psalm 2 Was one of the favorite texts of New Testament authors. It was favored by the apostles. Many times we read the son of God. You are my beloved son. That all comes from right here. Psalm 2. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. A couple of things. You and I are walking on holy ground. It's almost like we, we get to eavesdrop on a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It's like you are brought into the intertrinitarian relationship of covenant and love and promise. We get to hear that, and verse 7, when it says, I will d- tell of the decree, it's a Hebrew word that speaks of a formal document of legitimacy. This Here's a formal document, as it were, coming from the very mouth of God the Father. Let me tell of the formal decree of God. He said to me, in verse 7, you are my son." Remember at the baptism when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and and then the heavens opened up and there was a voice that said, you are my beloved son right here, quoting Psalm 2. At the transfiguration, the heavens opened up, a voice came down from heaven, you are my beloved son. Son, Again, right here at the beginning and the end of the ministry of Christ, the father affirms relationally, you are my son. You are my son. Well, what does that mean to be the son of God? It means to be equal to God. It means to be of the same essence as God. It means to to receive the same honor and to have the same role and the same function as God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are mine and you are of the same essence as me. You have the honor and the role and the function as God. What a relational relational Christ. That he has with God the Father. Look at the rulership of the Christ in verse eight. Ask of me, the Father says, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Oh, can, can, can you can you imagine God the Father saying to God the Son, "Ask, and I will give all of the nations, the kings." Every continent, every country, every judge, every monarch, every person. I will give them as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. There's coming a day when all of the ends of the earth will be owned and possessed by Christ when he reigns as the king. Verse 9, look at how it continues. Look at what the father promises the son. Verse 9, you shall break them with the rod of iron and you shall shatter them to pieces like earthenware. Now you and I might think, well, okay, shatter them. No, 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 This was an image that all kings in the ancient world knew and they wrote about. Let me tell you about it. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there would be a a king who would have a jar and he would write or inscribe the name of a rebellious man or a rebellious city or a rebellious country under their dominion. And if there was someone or some nation or land that was rebelling, the name would be inscribed on that jar. The king would take that jar into the temple of their deity and he would take his royal staff and smash that jar to pieces. Ah, the picture in verse 9 is not just some ancient Near Eastern deity, or a king, smashing a jar. No, no, no. This is how easy it would be for heaven's king, with all authority, to crush all worldwide rebellion swiftly. This comes to fruition in Revelation chapter 19 when we read in verse 15, From Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword at the second coming, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the rulership of the Christ. Church family, aren't you thankful that you know this Christ savingly? No one, no one who meets this Christ when he comes to break his enemies with the rod of iron or shatter them like earthenware, no enemy will escape. No king will escape. No monarch will escape. No powerful emperor will ever escape. All will be dashed by the rulership of Christ if they continue in their rebellion. So so now... If we've seen the rebellion of the nations, and we have seen the rebuke of the Lord, and then we saw the rulership of the Christ, or the Messiah, now in your outline, number four, you can't miss the fourth and final heading. Number four, I want to show you the reconciliation to the Son. Oh, I wish that I could just give a long lecture with all the features on the evangelistic missionary heart of God right here. These verses, in verses 10 to 12, is God the evangelist speaking to those who rebel in verses 1 to 3. God is urging, God is pleading, God is inviting, God is summoning, and he is exhorting all the rebels to repent. I remember reading this week, It was Matthew Henry who said this, Those that will not bow shall break. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings... Now, therefore, O kings, well, what kings? The rebellious kings of verses 1 to 3 who say, let's tear their fetters apart and cast off the ropes of God. We don't want God to reign over us. We will not have this Christ to rule over us. God says, show discernment, verse 10, and take warning, O judges of the earth. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling, oh we God, God wants reverential obedience, and a God absorbed a god entranced joy in him to tremble before his majesty and to love his glory, and to worship God with honor as the king and then verse twelve, if you look carefully at verse twelve you'll notice how much longer that verse is from the other verses. In Hebrew poetry, that brings out emphasis. Usually the verses are quite short. When there's usually two or three clauses, maybe three lines in our poetry, that's usually emphatic. Verse 12, kiss the son in the Hebrew. Kiss him. Do homage to him. Bow low in humble worship. Surrender fully as the slave of Christ. Kiss? What do you mean kiss? Well, you and I think that's a little bit weird perhaps. But in the ancient world, and you can go to museums today and you can find the, the obelisk, the black obelisk of the Assyrian king with the Israelite king Jehu bowing down and kissing the feet of the Assyrian monarch. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, you would bow low And you would kiss the feet of the superior king. Total honor and full submission. Total honor and full submission. What's the invitation from God? Kiss the son. Submit to him. Worship him, love him, bow before him, lest, verse 12, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, because his wrath may soon be kindled. Let us never forget, there is no refuge from the Lord, but there is only refuge In the Lord. And the point of verse 12. Is God evangelistically urging sinners. Come. Come to my son. Before he utterly destroys you. Come and and bow the knee in full surrender. To this wonderful king. And this Lord. And this monarch. Before he dashes you to pieces for your rebellion. Well, how do we kiss the sun? How do we kiss the sun? We do that by trusting in him. We do that by serving him. We do that by adoring him and worshiping him. We kiss the son by loving him. We we kiss the son by bowing before him in submission. By obeying him. By following his word. We we kiss the son by glorifying him and boasting in him and what he has done. But do it now. Because his anger will quickly, and it's a little adverbial clause in the Hebrew that's emphatic. According to a very short moment, his wrath will be kindled. It'll soon be kindled. It'll quickly be kindled. Come to Christ and do it now. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, just... As we draw this to a close here in a moment and then pray. Hebrews chapter 1 is, I think, reflecting on this a little bit. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in the last days he has spoken to us in his son, allusion to Psalm 2 right there, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Oh, don't wait. Don't put it off. And I love how Psalm 2 ends with the great confidence. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Oh, but you can come to the refuge, you can know the Savior, but don't drift away. Don't hear the word and neglect it. Don't reject such a great salvation. But oh, how blessed are all who take refuge in the Son of God. You know what? That's our message for our world. This psalm, Psalm 2, could not be more relevant for us right here today the rebellion, the blasphemy, the, 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 the hatred of God and of His Christ. And yet we say, be warned. His anger is quickly kindled. Come and find refuge in the Son. Kiss the Son. Believe upon Him. I'll end with this. In Acts chapter 4, There's an amazing account of Peter and John who are brought before the Jewish leaders. And remember, the Jewish leaders say they are uneducated and untrained men. Remember that? And then after that, they are commanded by the Jewish leaders, you cannot teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, they say, you know what? We just can't stop speaking about the things that we've seen and heard. We're just not going to stop. So then they're threatened and they're released. You know what they do? They go to the brethren. They go to the church. And they have a prayer meeting. In the prayer meeting, in Acts 4, verses 24 and following, guess what they pray? Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people devising a vain thing. Why are they raging? Ah, they're raging against the Lord, the church is acknowledging. So what do they do? Acts 4.29. They say, God, grant that we would have boldness and confidence. As we go to our prayer meeting, that's what we need. We need boldness. And we need confidence. Because you know what? The nations rebel. But our God sovereignly reigns and he calls and he invites all rebels to find refuge in the son of God. Amen. Father, thank you for the truth that you have given. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the glory and kingship of Christ. And thank you, O oh Lord, all oh, that we can find refuge A strong, sturdy, secure refuge by bowing before the King. We praise and worship and adore Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.